my dad was mad at me, or I I wish I wasn't enslaved as a I like princess. That. I hope they said, I wish I wasn't my dad mad at me. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Nerd on. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Nerd On, the podcast you didn't need but deserve, where all levels of nerd are welcome. Whether you're a writer, director, screenwriter, producer, uh, or all of the above, or camera operator. Oh, uh, except for today. Yes, today uh, we take a topic that's been in the back of our heads for months, and recently has been mentioned in our Nerd On update. Check out the show, and from user uh, As Newton. Uh-huh. So the minds yeah. behind. Shout out! Shout out! Shout out! Yeah. We're going to talk about the minds uh, behind some of the greatest orchestrations of our imagination. Today, we're talking about directors. In Directors Are Us. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've done an R.S. Yeah. Oh, no, it's yeah. always my good, favorite. Uh, let's get the show uh, on the road. My name is Tom. Ali. Caitlin. Corey. And I am Josh. And this episode is brought to you in part by... The Nerd on Nation, powered by Patreon. If you are new to Patreon (laughs) and what that is, it's essentially an exclusive membership uh, service in which you can support your favorite creators like Nerd On. Fun stuff. And for as little as a dollar to five dollars a month, you can get exclusive content. You can get a Discord server that is hopping all the time from gardening to comic books. Guys, you even get discounts. And discounts to our merch. You even get me. You get money back, baby. Yeah. Pictures of little kitties. Yeah, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the discount is more than the Patreon, so it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I love discounts. Uh, but yeah, check that out. Nerdon.io backslash Patreon. That was it. That's cool. it. That's it. All right, directors. So, yeah, so housekeeping. Yeah, the housekeeping is done. Uh, normally in our shows where we've been doing movies and TV shows lately, we go with like brief synopsis, mm-hmm. guess that grump, all that stuff. Production. We're not doing that. Yeah. Throwing that out the window. Yeah. We're just having a discussion. We're just going to discuss some of our favorite directors because the question. Some about uh, our favorite directors. <laughs> 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 the question that was, that was posed to us was, what are your favorite directors? And I think oh. leading the conversation, we should kind of think introspectively about what a director is, why are they important to us? And and we're mainly talking about film, TV, you know, things that people, you know, they're the ones that answer the questions and lead the creative journey for the projects that we have been most Correct. influenced by. Yeah. So let's first kind of just go an overhead a little bit, like directors. Like yes. what is important about a director from all of us? And I think it's it's important to include the discussion of there is a difference between like a writer director, an auteur, mm-hmm. uh, director that's very collaborative, uh, ri- directors from TV shows, directors from movies, uh, directors who shouldn't be directors. <laughs> Uh, so stuff like that. Um, yeah. um, for those who don't know Tom, you'll explain this the best. In our uh, tour. <laughs> good layup. And I just went, what? Foul line. Yeah. Uh, so no, no, I, I'm serious. There's yeah. a lot of people yeah. who don't know. So an auteur. A- Michael Bay. A-U-T-E-U-R. Auteur. Auteur theory is pretty much a study or a comprised amount of collection of thoughts of how a director uh, signs off their films. Pretty much... They have their signatures around films, and they have Wes a, Anderson, for example, a central right. sense of how they construct meaning and tell stories and what matters to them the most. So, if you go onto USA and watch a rerun of a Wes Anderson film, 
you can tell. Yeah. If you see a movie and there's a hot chick and there's some air blowing in her face and there's a lens Explosions. flare, it's Michael Bay. Yeah. If you see some guy's back and you see mostly neutral tones and a, a, like metallic orca- orchestral music, it's probably Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Oh. If you see the character moving through the scene and the camera's doing nothing but following them, and if the, ca- if the character stops, the camera stops, it's probably David Fincher. Yep. Oh. So things like that, there are signatures that these directors do and not a lot of those are celebrated or known about because it's hard to kind of as Josh mentioned it along on our episodes hard to quantify art mm-hmm. yeah um, but some smart people who are smarter than I am and all of us try to well I I, I had a discussion with my wife leading up to this episode of, shout out to Bonnie but shout out to my wife Bonnie uh, because putting together a list like this is it's an interesting experience because you you kind of go through the gamut of what you like the movies that you like and then you start connecting the dots and it's like with some with some directors it's very very easy to tell like the ones that you mentioned but there's also like Terry Gilliam, Tim Burton, you know these directors mm-hmm. that you watch their film and you're like oh that's i mean that's who that's that very that much that's who mm-hmm. that is and you also have direct because uh Bonnie is also a writer and i know that her style of writing she's not one that likes to include a lot of direction Whereas some writers, they do write. They write visually, like this is what's happening. They're kind on of the writing screen. for themselves. The camera right. tilts mm-hmm. up, and we yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's it's very interesting to put together a list like this because you're like, okay, how much of it was the director? How much of it was the writing, uh, kind of going into the direction and the film as a whole? Or it's kind of a little bit of both. And I, it's. I it, think a great uh, example for that as well is kind of like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin writing is very yeah. signature. And then how does that work with David Fincher? And the way we'll that we'll go into that. Well, they that works. Yeah, David Fincher will <laughs> oh, tell yeah. Aaron Sorkin to shut the fuck up. Yeah, and then it's like I'm directing this, and I have final cut, and that's what happens. And some, and that's the thing with auteurs; it's hard to not see like in some sides of the of the coin, people might say like, "Oh, there are arrogant people who want only their vision," and other people are like, "Well, there are people that don't know how to collaborate." Versus other people will say like other directors like are only collaborators and they don't know how to have their own stake in the thing. Like we were talking about Did Aladdin. You and I was saying, like, it was really surprising to see uh, Guy Ritchie actually have his directorial, like, signatures in there in a otherwise yeah. manufactured movie. Um, and it's really tough to get away with that stuff when you have, like, here is this guy, the director. It's like, I don't yeah. know one thing. Like, look at John Favreau's movies. You can't really tell which ones of his, his Wonderful movies. director. Yeah. But, but like, it's more of a collect. It's more of a, he's more of a collaborative director versus a auteur. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's worse or less. Think of, I want to kind of contra- compare it to women who women could see more colors than men. And so yeah. they could see like red or blood red or they could see like higher hues of that stuff. Well, like it's not like we can't see it, but it's like there's just different shades of it and there's a different yeah. spectrum of it. Is and that, not, wait, is that a science thing? That's yeah. true. Really? Women could see more yeah. colors than men. It's written into one of my PAs. Go scripts. you. Wow. Huh. How do but I know as, this? Not as many as the mantis shrimp. Because yeah. no one teaches <laughs> anyone anything about women when you're a kid. And no. that's why we have nerd on. Thank you. Uh, uh-huh. so, um, but yeah, so I think it's important to talk about directors specifically. It's not writers or us or producers. Right. We can have those episodes too. Yeah, but we for, will have those episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I liken myself as a director. Um, I've written. I, I liken myself as a writer director. Um, and to me, what that means is like I can write my own scripts, and I want it done in a certain way, and I have a certain style that I want to do. I wouldn't call myself an auteur. I haven't made that many films to create my own thematic sense of meaning or all. So there's things I want and things I want to have in all the things I do. But uh, to be considered an auteur is a high claim, 
high critical acclaim from yeah. a lot of people. And a lot of people tend to want to do that. But it's also like risk, right? So like if I wanted Ollie to like write the story for it and I tell him like, no, I'm not going to have this in my film, then I could, again, it could be seen like I'm an asshole but and not collaborative, right? right? But then it's kind of like the pristine and prestige of all of it. But uh, what I was saying was with directors, why we're talking about today, they do at the end of the day have to make a lot of decisions. And yeah, they do, right. the director, you know, the word changes from theater to TV to film. The director yeah. means such a different thing in TV world than it does in theater and with film. Um, and at some point, there is a level of decision-making. Um, mm -hmm. There's some level point of collaboration. But at the end of the day, it's weird because they get a lot of the credit versus like writers are not highly, you know, you don't hear Hollywood stories like they want to sleep with the writer only in Californication. But that's the only <laughs> sense. Yeah. But most of the time they want to sleep Shout with out. the stars. They want to sleep with the producers. They right. want to blah, blah, blah. Um, but well, you know, the, the thing that I've always noticed, you know, with directors anyways, is the fact that they, they're kind of seen as that visionary, right? To, like their vision is what the film becomes, whether it's through their words or not. If it's through their own words, then it's almost as if it's sort of like they just have to go through the formality of writing it. It's, it's all in their head. If they give, if you gave them a camera and a crew, they could just shoot it, you know, but it's like, you got to write it down. You got to do the formal process, whatever. Yeah, they're the, they're um, the captain of the ship. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. like when you're when you're with a different writer, the instant you have to collaborate, there's always going to be like some level of compromise somewhere where you where you can you might that's where you might lose some of that. The funny thing that I want feel. everyone to kind of uh, take note of after listening to this episode is look at how many press tours that the actors go on to for blockbusters. And then how much they do for artisan films. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time the artisan films are the ones that the directors are doing the press tours versus mm -hmm. the actors. Yeah. Yeah. The actors will do the big blockbusters because those are seat, seat sellers. The directors are the seat sellers for the artisan films. Because mm -hmm. yeah. people are like, I want to see Lars von Trier. I want to see him do the Dark Moon 99 and shit. So it's all that other stuff. But, I never thought about that actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, without further ado, who wants to talk about their director they want to discuss? Yeah, I'll jump in. Uh, I'm I'm bringing two to the table, but I'm gonna start with Fincher. Uh, Who is David Fincher? <clears throat> David Fincher is one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, he has done things like uh, Fight Club, Gone Girl. He recently uh, helmed Mindhunter uh, on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, he did Social Network with Aaron Sorkin that we mentioned earlier. He Alien just, Three. He I was gonna say his directorial <laughs> debut was Alien Three. He started as a uh, special effects guy. Yeah. Uh, and was just given this movie. Uh, what? ILM, right? Mm -hmm. At ILM, yeah. So he was given Alien 3. Not a great movie, beautifully well, directed. Industrial Light Magic, Lucas, oh, yeah. Lucas yeah, yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But when I first discovered him, it was because of Fight Club. So I, I moved to, uh, I had watched it once or twice in, in, in high school, and I moved to New York all by myself, very lonely time, and I put Fight Club on repeat. On my Blu-ray, nice. I just had it Small town boy. on repeat and repeat and repeat. <laughs> it's one of the few movies that I know inside and out. Uh, and he has a really interesting. Uh, there's an every frame of painting uh, video essay about him as a director, and it's a really wonderful thing. But it, they, they talk about uh, how he likes to have his camera be uh, omnipotent and just be mm -hmm. kind of this like part of force. the scene. Yeah, this unstoppable force in a scene. Right, it's seeing things that you need to see, but other characters can't see. They right. are doomed to see what's happening. There it is. Mm. Uh, and so he'll use a lot of these CGI shots. So especially in Fight Club, I don't know if you recall. Nope. But there's one shot where it goes through and down through an entire building, like different yeah. floors, and into the back of one van, and then it goes through the windshield, through the windshield of another, and through another van, and it shows you this timer. 
Mm-hmm. So it it's just a really unique way of filming things. He also has his uh, aesthetic, which is usually, again, kind of muted, muted colors uh, and uh, kind of gritty looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a he has this quote because a lot of his stories are kind of those gritty kind of down to earth, little tougher pill to swallow kind of stories. Yeah. There's a little voyeurism in there. A little well. voyeurism. Uh, and his quote is that he goes, I believe every everybody on some level is a pervert. And so then <laughs> I, I'm trying to just tell that story. My one of my favorites besides Fight Club, which I actually saw really late, was Social Network. Uh, Tom, you good? So good. I think I was trying to get you to watch it, right? <laughs> yeah, and then I, because oh. I, he, because I've always talked about how Aaron Sorkin's one of my favorite writers too, and he was like, "How the fuck have you not watched Social Network? Yeah. It's your favorite director and your favorite writer together." Uh, and we watched some behind the scenes stuff of it before, and it really was an interesting thing of seeing someone like Aaron Sorkin who has such a unique tone mm-hmm. really kind of compromise but work together with David Fincher and I think he said he really loved it if, if I recall if, if you it, recall it better than I do if anyone doesn't know Aaron Sorkin did West Wing did Moneyball uh, later on did uh, Steve Jobs and the thing about he, what he writes he writes really fast he writes a thousand miles per hour yeah. and so everyone just speaks really like intelligently which I think is a faux pas of intelligence um, but they are actually, actually able to get away with a lot of exposition by really quick dialogue so mm. I mean he talks as fast as I talk sometimes um, but uh he actually writes very dreamy. He mm-hmm. writes to the better of our angels. Yeah. And he expects that there's goodness in people. And Fincher does not. The opposite. Yeah. Mm. So it was a really interesting way to see them them work together. And I think interesting. it's a it's probably it's up there with Fight Club and competition as my favorite Fincher film. I have some baggage with Fight Club, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening to the director commentary, I just think he's a he's a super intelligent guy, like highly uh, imaginative. And uh, I don't know if, if you guys out there listening have seen Mindhunter, but he has little uh, quirks to the way he films. So not only does he use a lot of CGI with his camera that I love, but he does this thing. Uh, it's hard to describe without, without visually showing it, but the camera will follow slight movements his character mm. does. So everything mm-hmm. he does on set is, is highly choreographed. I'm licking my lips. Even guys. from someone, oh. someone <laughs> slouching to sitting up straight tells a part of his story. And in those moments where you see someone slouch to sit up straight, the camera will actually dolly and follow them. Mm-hmm. Whoa. It doesn't uh, tilt. It fucking moves itself. And yeah. It's a harder move than you think it is. And apparently it takes take after take after take to get it, but he's really dedicated. It happens a lot in Mindhunter. Someone will have a realization and they'll be maybe sitting forward on their knees and they'll go to sit all the way up and the camera pan- doesn't, like he said, doesn't tilt up, but it, it literally lifts up on like on a crane or on a right. dolly or something. Um, that sounds like I, a lot of extra effort. So but it's mean, wonderful, but go, it tells he, a lot of stories. He'll go as high as volumes, 70 takes. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Um, and then, But he'll also tell you to fuck off because he's like, I did it on the seventh take, so shut up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I... That, I mean, that's, that's kind of what ties me to him as a director is his use of the camera. It's a very unique uh, presence in his storytelling. Well, it allows you to as an audience member to be super engaged and uh he'll like most of fincher's films and it's lovely and this is my favorite kind of film is just dialogue between two characters that have different like viewpoints on each other yeah and so you get to see the power struggles between each other and Caitlin's just laughing at He's everything. He's making such a good point. I don't I know. know I whole thing. She's like, this fucking hack over here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tom knows nothing about film. But no, like, it's really great that he does that because it, like, the opening sequence of Social Network is him, is, is a main character and a girl breaking up. Mm-hmm. One of the best mm-hmm. scenes in Seven, 
is Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt like talking in an office. Like he'll always have those scenes and somehow he'll make talking probably one of the boringest things you could do. We're talking right now as a podcast yeah. and people are listening to us because they have nothing better to do when they're driving, right? <laughs> like, you're, yeah. you're stuck with yeah, us. that's the in reason. A, in a movie, like- Wow, Tom. Wow. Well, I'm just saying. Like audio, the thing about- I agreed uh, with him. I was like, yeah. Well, another <laughs> thing is like, Josh, <laughs> hear me shit? out. You know this too. Audio is such an overlooked craft. Yeah. Dialogue is Think such about an Fincher overlooked. Is his sound design. It's great. It's it's great. Um, Mindhunter. That is di- a study. Dialogue in sound is so design. overlooked, wow. but he uses it in such an effective manner. Where you have films nowadays that throw boobs, machines, superpowers all in your face, he makes a dialogue scene more compelling than any of yeah. those. How uh, is that this possible? Is, this is the last thing I'll say on his camera movement. Um, there's this is a mild spoiler for Mindhunter season one. Uh, <gasps> it doesn't spoil any of the story. It's just it's a unique thing. Uh, Throughout the entire camera, he rarely shoots handheld. I think Seven is is his film that he shoots the most handheld shots on. He really likes things executed to a certain way. So he either used dollies oh. or he'll use sticks or he'll use whatever. The entirety of Mindhunter is shot on some sort of tripod, stabilization, something or other. Dolly. Some sort of dolly, some sort of track. The last episode has a moment where his character... So you're watching 10 episodes of this, 10 hours in, right? His character, your main character, feels uncertain for the first time. And he walks down this hallway and starts to have a panic attack. And halfway down the hallway, we're on a a tracking shot Mm -hmm. on a dolly. And suddenly it switches to handheld. (laughs) And it's this really jarring thing because especially for someone like me, I binged the entire series. So I watched almost 10 hours straight over two days. Mm -hmm. So to see that moment where it gets handheld. And the moment he, a nurse finally rushes over and catches his breath, it gets put back on the back track. On the track. And it's like, it gave me goosebumps the first time I watched it. Because it's Whoa. such like the, ten, like the long con, right? Yeah. You got nine episodes of never use a handheld shot to suddenly let's go down this hallway and shake it up a bit. And then as soon as his breath catches, it's back to the tracking hmm. shot and back and the, to normal. The beauty of that is kind of knowing the mastery that it takes to do that. Because to me, I always kind of look at art as like being a Jedi. You have to know the way so you can break the rules properly. If you're yeah, just breaking the right. rules, unabe- like just unbeknownst, then you're just being an asshole. Well, it's, it's, it would be without purpose at that point. You're yeah. Gonna, like you got to understand. Like breaking the 180 degree doing. rule perfectly is a is a feat to do. But if you're just doing it haphazardly, then it makes no sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the same thing. Like, he, he said he only uses close-ups to tell you information. Yeah. It's, otherwise, it's a waste of a close-up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Next person? So yeah. Anyway, Dave Fincher. Shout out. Um, well, I can go. Oh, do like, it. Can do I pull the curtain it. back a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm garbage, and uh, the two directors that I picked are two are part of other people's directors that they want to talk about. So I'm going to be adding on to their conversation. Yeah. Well, no, that's fine. I mean, I'm sure a lot of us might have some. That's why I'm kind of like I'm. I don't just, like well, any of your guys' directors, <laughs> so I won't add to anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair. Wow. I was like, just next week, I mean, Corey and Josh have two uh, unique ones compared to what what we bo- well, us three will have. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 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 So, so I know the one you're speaking of, so I'll leave it for you. Well, we, okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, and then we'll add together. Oh yeah, 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 and then we'll and I'll add yeah, together. Yeah, there you go. You're such a good lover. I'm gonna. He's I'm gonna go goodness. with. So giving. Uh, I was originally, um, and I have to shout him out, my homeboy Kevin Smith. The we homie. Go, we go way back. Shout out, um, Smitty. Okay. You'll have your own episode. I'll, I'll make sure of it. But for today, <laughs> don't hit me again. Today, I want to talk about uh, JJ Abrams. <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Oh. Out of left field, right? You did not put that in the list. I did not put that. I changed my mind uh, while I was up Fucking, <laughs> we don't write these show notes for any reason. <laughs> uh, fast and loose, baby. Go on. Uh, so, <laughs> like light and loose. Keep it so, light and yeah, loose. Light and loose. Uh, so, J.J. Abrams, man. like uh, the f- Him as a director, right? Directors are us. He's done, he does a lot of other stuff, but he's specifically directed, if you are not aware of some of the films that he might have directed. Might uh, have. It's it's still out. My the verdict's still out. The verdict's still out. Still out. <laughs> for one. I want to give it to you. Impossible three. Oh, you want to do chronological? We're, we're going. We're going to go with uh, film directing. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mission Impossible three, which is actually my favorite one. Um, Star Trek two thousand nine, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Super eight. All right. Stranger Things. I love Super the, eight. The, the Super eight's great. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he will be doing Rise of the Skywalker Episode Nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many reasons I like his directorial work. One, you kind of get his sense from Lost, right? We, I think that was kind of like the big thing with him. Yeah. Alias, of course, Felicity. I still really want to go through, go back and watch through Alias because it yeah. looks awesome. Um, but we kind of got a sense for it for his work and kind of like what his style is inside of Lost, but then moving to his, um, moving to Mission Possible 3, there was something about the way things look for him, use the anamorphic lens, I think, for most of his work. Um, he does a lot of stuff in camera as far as like lighting effects, things like that. That lens flare, baby. Lens flares, of course, made popular by Star Trek. Um, but even like Mission, there's something, there's some kind of like saturation or vividness clarity to his to the way he like shoots that i really appreciate and i really it's fun to watch his work like when you think of a yeah a a great example is in star trek into darkness the opening scene on that other planet they were trying to save spoilers whatever uh it's the opening scene uh but it's like it's what is it i think it was like yellow people running through a red field yeah and then yellow shirts or yellow skinned and Closed. Skinned. Clothed. Skinned. My right? people. Okay. And then they uh, dive up, into the clearest crystal looking water. Yeah. That's like teal. So yes. there's these contrasts of colors and it doesn't look it doesn't look out of place. It doesn't look weird. It looks kind of fun and kind of weirdly real and I don't know. The it's, interesting thing, it's contrasted with a lot of Mission Impossible Three. Mission Impossible Three is highly muted. It's very gritty and it there's parts that you see like when there's the light right, the the right kind of lighting and stuff like that, I'm where you see some like reds come through very sharply. So he knows how to use colors, I think. Well, I think he knows how to, to use effect. it in the world. Yeah, right. right. And that's what I'm saying. It's contrasting because he kind of understands the world in that sense. Because like, I'm just thinking about the bridge action sequence where like mm. missiles are coming on the bridge. It's just like a gray movie. It's, yeah. And but that's how it is because it's a spy. It's almost the closest they've gotten to like a little espionage mixed with action mm-hmm. because it's more of a personal story. Right. Mm-hmm. And... There's some, there's just like this charm to the way he he shoots things and his camera movements work um, that are very kind of I don't know kind of like naturally effortlessly epic. Sometimes. Well, I would say yeah. like he allows like sweeping the, shots. Sweeping yeah, shots like he lets the camera like, live in the not in the same way as Fincher does, but more aggressively. That right. you're like this fairy mm-hmm. and you're floating through the scene amongst the crew. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of like a fun ride, and it really does, in many ways, remind me of like Steven Spielberg's work. Yeah, and and it kind of has that. Spiritual successor, in a sense. Right, and and that's kind of 
like almost like self admitted in a weird way. What would you say your favorite J.J. Abrams film is? <laughs> J.J. Abrams. My J-squared. favorite. My favorite J.J. Abrams m- movie. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Is Jabrams. Uh, I mean, I would have to go with Star Trek. Star Trek yeah. into darkness nice. or no, just Star Trek. Very first. Yeah. Um, that movie. I think it was either the same year. I know it was a year right before after Iron Man two thousand eight. I think that those couple years were like for me. I think pivotal moments in cinema where like I feel like like movies leveled up <laughs> like that and like CG just became <laughs> believable and cinematic reawakening like the the re- the first reveal shot of the Enterprise in that movie is pretty breathtaking I think that was like the, their teaser was yeah. just showing the side well of they it. show the side of it being built yeah, yeah. and then in that. the movie the first time you see it is when it's revealed or whatever and it's just it's glorious it looks super realistic no. And I think a lot of the like the f- camera flares he does, he gets a lot of. How do you guys feel about the camera flares? Can I do two things? Shout out to you my go. to my boy Tyler. Shout out to my girl Camille who worked on all the Star Trek movies. Shout awesome. Out. So they know JJ Abrams. Yeah. So for context, uh, he likes the camera flares, so he he does it on purpose. So he has like oh, lights that are flare. pointed into. The, what do we What do we think of it? Yeah. So just to build, oh. just to give you the foundation, he he takes lights and he points them into the camera. Yeah. He, he achieves them on purpose. Yeah. And then afterwards, in post, they add more if they need it. So here's my <laughs> two cents on it: is that he doesn't actually do it in a lot of other movies beyond Star Trek. Well, right. the only you know why he did it in Star Trek, right? It makes sense. In but Star the, Trek, the exact line. No. His exact line he said was the reason I added more lights in Star Trek than any other film is because I wanted the future to be seen as like this paradise world yeah. where you can't tell where lights are coming from like you can't tell a light source from the other <laughs> right right and like light will just and come it just from it's just all it the fits. lights were integrated into the set for like for real when they were shooting yeah they're like real lights that they're using they would hit and so the they're gonna, the they're right gonna give you real lens flares. i like wow. so here's my thing i joke about it a lot yeah I everybody does joke, I, I do it's, too it's it's easy but like easy. uh i think it fit wonderfully and it's like one of those it's a step it's almost a step towards an auteur thing in, for those Star Trek films where mm-hmm. you're just like, that's J.J. I think it sure. just brings this sense of like atmosphere and dimension in to mm-hmm. the scene, especially especially when it's on a close-up. I know one of my favorite parts of Star Trek Does Nine is just the beginning, just the opening sequence with Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Uh, but then there's like this very specific moment where like the, he comes on the bridge and it's, Kirk, baby. and it's just like, it's uh, the original Kelvin uh uh, what is it, Commander or whatever? Oh yeah, uh, he comes into yeah. the room. I forget his. I forget the actor's name. Oh, is that Bruce Greenwood? Maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. I think he's. I think he might be uh, Indian. Okay, gone. Uh, so he it comes in and it's like the sun is really bright and it's like polarized the view screen, so you get all those cool special effects. And then he sits down and they get this close up and it just looks so crystal clear. So that to me, I was just like really, I'm always just amazed by. The way like his stuff looks in camera, mm-hmm. um, and of course, and like I, th- I feel like he's almost the perfect person to have done Star Wars Episode Seven, just because like he like cre- on a creative level he brings the storytelling prowess, he brings his like the fun adventure visual style, yeah, to Star like Wars that Spielberg, complemented Spielberg it so well, right? And I think that just fit uh, Force Awakens so well, and I think that's why it, it did as well as it did. Of course, you know you yeah. got the you know, cameos and all that stuff or, or, you know, Harrison Ford coming back. But um, I will say, uh, I think it is pretty cool that one guy has now directed both Star Trek's <laughs> reboot and Star, and Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, not reboots, but yeah. Yeah. Because they both, they both are still linear with the old stories. He has breathed mm-hmm. life but into two yes, franchises. But yes, he has brought two star franchises back. Exactly. Uh, it's one guy. Exactly. And, you know, 
there, there, you know, we won't get into Star Trek. Maybe we'll save that for its own episode. But, uh, you know, there's a the whole controversy of like, if you're a Trekkie, you hate, you hate Star Trek, you know, et cetera, et cetera. For me, yeah, I was never really, um, yeah, and there's the Star Wars crowd as well. But like for Star Trek, I was never really a big Trekkie. So I didn't, so I wasn't offended by it. There's nothing for me to be offended too, because yeah. I really only watch the movies. Well, there's a difference um, between that and fans too, because like my my wife's parents are Trekkies and they also love Star Wars. You can like both, y'all. Yeah, just want to yeah. say. Well, that's meant. Like uh, that's meant <laughs> the specific like Star Trek that J.J. Abrams made. Mm. Oh yeah, would make Trekkies upset because oh. it's like a re- side dude. I've heard or whatever. You can also like both. I've heard that. <laughs> right. So I'm just like I. Uh, I don't care. This I think it's a phenomenally put together movie yeah. with great characters, like great acting. Like it's entertaining. It. The cast is phenomenal. If you think about the cast again, you know you probably haven't thought about the cast for a while. You like the movie. I like the movie. I like the movie. <laughs> uh, dope. I Josh. Like yeah, I'll go. This is a very hard thing to narrow down. Like Tell I really actually it. do have like a handful of people, and I was told to put that down to two. It was easier and for I might me because even... I know we're doing a part two of this, so oh. I have four mm-hmm. more that I I've want to talk be. about. So, so I have to pick one because it sounds like we're okay. Wait, I'll only did one. Around. Well, yeah, we're going. I only did oh, one. Oh, we're just oh, doing oh, one. oh okay, okay. We're, okay. we're doing it. All right. Well, my first one that I will talk about is Edgar Wright. Um, when I was putting together this list, I was thinking about. Mm direct like movies that i like and i can kind of put a pinpoint almost on like oh it's it's him. well shoot it's him it's her um and edgar wright movies they really just i have this dream and i'm gonna put it out there i would really like to create a film that is of the style of edgar wright what i like about edgar wright and i've talked about this in the past of how some people use sound design and music together mm-hmm. Edgar Wright does that too, but he also does it visually. What I really love about Edgar Wright, and it makes me squeal every time I see it, <laughs> is a transition from one scene to the next, and it almost you don't see it. <laughs> yeah, and it's oh, like there. it's a it's like a pan of a character, but then the character's still there, but now it's the next scene. Oh, a mask. It, yeah, mm. and it just it makes me squeal because I'm just like, that is, it just I love it, and mm-hmm. like you know movies like you got. Spaced, if you go back old days, Spaced is a TV series oh, yeah. that didn't have didn't have a lot of run, <laughs> but it I found Spaced way later and it's one of my favorite television shows. And it really is in the vein. If if you like Edgar Wright, watch that. It's mm. it's fucking fantastic. But you've also got like Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, recents like Hot Scott Fuzz. Pilgrim versus the World. It's the Coronado trilogy. Love yeah. Scott Pilgrim. Um, so Baby underrated. Driver is one of his recent ones. Um, it's an editor's wet dream, Baby Driver, yeah. by the way. Just oh. want to throw I that mean, out there. The, it's the way that, it's like I said, the, to music. Yeah. That's why. Mm. The transitions, the, I love the way that text is played with, on-screen text. Mm-hmm. Um, I love just like the like the like thing, things happening so quickly, I realize I'm a child because I like things to just be like it's your lizard. It's, fun. it's, your, well, lizard, it's your lizard brain. It's, yeah. it's not the even language. That. Oh, go ahead. I'll, I'll go into well, that. I was after. gonna say. Well, I mean, the thing that what he does in in all intents and purposes, what you're saying, like having the thousand cuts a second, having text on screen, editing music, all sounds very rudimentary. Yeah. But again, it's the way you use it and the mastery of how he does it, like allows him to play with how well the audience is engaging with the story that he wants to tell and when he wants to tell it. Yeah. He do, like most times if you see in, like a, a normal scene where a character is driving from one city to another city, he'll let he most directors who are garbage and lazy will have a second unit fucking just be like, "Well, now you're going to have to watch this shit and you'll have to wait till they get to that scene." 
he will use it and make meaning out of it. And I think Corey has an example that he wants to share. Well, no, it's not that I don't have an example. It's the same thing I, I was going to mention. The It's another every frame of painting. I've mentioned that twice now. Which a great video series. Uh, but he talks about how, you know, like Tom said, if you want to, in a movie, what you would typically see is someone driving a clock screen from, from left to right. Mm-hmm. You'd see a city sign, whatever. Uh, but then there's the hot fuzz version where he moves from the city out, right? And suddenly it's, let's get in the car. Let's get, let's, watch the cell phone service, let's look at the bright neon taxi of the city, and then yeah. we're going to get on a subway, wake Every up. Every shot is telling you like and a we're different The a dim thing. old taxi sign, you know you're in some rural area, You a shot of the cell phone where it's no service. like It's little things, and it takes seven seconds for yeah. you to see this. He's showing you instead of telling you. Do you know how much room you now have for storytelling because you've cut a minute and a half but out of your travel the, scene? The thing right, that yeah. In those seven seconds, he created meaning. Yeah. Where some people in seven seconds just show, show like... Boom, explosion, air, fighter planes. Walking away dramatically. Fucking lens flare. Yeah. And you're like, in those seven seconds, you didn't tell me one thing. In this person, they know they could give me meaning in seven he, seconds. He yeah. understands the, you know, show, don't tell. Well, it's like he's he's appealing to the yeah. lizard brain where you're like, I, I am actively at a primordial level responding to it. And then I'm also responding to your frontal lobe at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's Because there's, there's key things that your brain intakes and can put together, right? You don't need to show someone getting in a car, shutting the door, putting their seatbelt on turning the car on, putting in reverse, seeing the light, seeing it pull out and go. All he needs to show you is a door shuts, the ignition turns, Mm -hmm. it kicks it into reverse, and you see a tire peel out, and suddenly you can be at the next. Your brain fills in the rest of that. Yeah. And if you're watching 24, you know Jack Bauer teleports. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, the other thing, too, is I I know that he's not, like, the only writer on his projects, but they're just funny. I the the kind of humor like sardonic, sarcastic. It's British humor, oftentimes mm-hmm. that just like lights Simon my Pegg. fire. Yeah, Simon Pegg, like Nick Frost. Yes, it's mm-hmm. always I love that. British humor is probably always going to be on par with my sense of humor because I grew up on Monty Python. It's silly. It's a little kooky, and it yeah, just I would say it is British, but they also definitely have American chops. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say yeah. Scott Pilgrim's really fucking good, and also. I did get a Mike Myers mask in Baby Driver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing, too, is that I think that you can tell this from his films is that he is a fan himself. Yeah. Like there are references to other things that he's a fan of. And I'm just like, I see you. I see you. Yep. That camera. Yeah, that's the one. I see you. You know what's funny? When he was making Shaun of the Dead with Simon Pegg, they were writing it. And then uh, 28 Days Later came out. And then after that, I think another zombie. F- oh, and then Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead came out. And then they were like, stay the course. Stay yeah. the course because ours will be different. Yeah. I yeah. But it, I think that was the perfect time for those two to come out first. Mm-hmm. And then a comedy. Be like, oh, so I've seen the real ones. This right. is a nice No, so what pace. they did, they took all the rules. Yeah. They took all the rules like these ones don't run or blah, blah, blah. These, this happens, this happens. Yeah. Like, and, they, yep. and they say, they never say zombie in the thing or Zed. No, they say Zed. The Zed word. Yeah. Don't say the Zed word. Uh, yeah. Another thing I really like about Edgar Wright is his his own jokes, and maybe this is this is this is another unique uh, director trait because I believe he is an auteur, a hundred percent. Is he has jokes from his previous film come back in other films? Yes, which is really nice. He has a big. If you have a look up Edgar Wright fence joke or shortcut joke, uh, yes. in three of the Cornetto trilogy, uh, every time there's always, "Well, you never heard about a shortcut?" and someone jumping over fences in some way, uh, and I just I I love that kind because it's the it's funny either way. Even if you don't know the joke, but if yeah. you are in on the joke, you're getting a thousand percent more yeah. out of that. Yeah, yeah. So shut up. Yeah, I'm also also like uh, 
uh, adding on to the humor is there's also visual, visual jokes that are happening yeah. on the screen. And I, I liken it back to like visual old, comedy, baby. I, I liken it back to the old like Naked Gun, Mel Brooks kind of movies where the comedy isn't just in what they're saying. You have to look at the frame. There's yeah. something silly or there's something there. Who were the there. guys who did that? Airplane. Uh, uh, I forget. They all did the same thing. They brought a, they introduced that style of comedy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And like you have like uh, Airplane, for instance, there's a scene. But if you look behind, there's a scene going on behind there. That's really kind of the, almost the comedy of the scene that you're going, that's silly. Well, one- but that happens, it, it happens sometimes with, uh, Edgar Wright's films where it's like there's something else going on that you you got to catch it in Scott Pil- so Scott Pilgrim is my favorite Edgar Wright film I'm gonna hop right yeah. on that I, I love say, that when Knives comes and visits Scott and then like they've <laughs> broken up or, or he doesn't want to break up with her and then it's uh it's a play with the narrator and the text and everything uh like, the, Mac- the other uh Macaulay Culkin yeah the other Kieran, other one. Kieran, Kieran Culkin. Culkin uh opens a door and then Scott's there and he closes the door right behind him a little <laughs> bit more and they're like where's Scott nowhere he jumps out of the window yeah. behind him exactly it's so good I'm like god <laughs> damn and she's like doesn't know he's like I'm sorry and like other things like, but like they do a scene where it's like there's tension between characters so they're like zoom zoom and then it'll go to other characters who know the other drama so zoom one zoom one and then the gay roommate looks at the boyfriend's like looks at him. <laughs> and then there's awkwardness like it's such a good kinetic another, frenetic movie. another style of visual comedy he uses is there's a scene in Shaun of the dead where sean comes in drunk and he writes something on the whiteboard and it's a wide shot and it's nighttime and they're i mean they're on a soundstage is how they pull this off but every they have windows in the kitchen and it's all dark and he passes out and a second later they use a practical where they sh- turn all the lights on they have the lights to turn on to look like mm-hmm. it's morning time yeah and he immediately wakes up and it's the same one shot it doesn't yeah. move at all <laughs> and it's really well done they do that mm. in scott pilgrim when uh, aubrey plaza is getting intense they will dim all the lights so it's just her yeah herself. she Whoa. just comes in yeah it's uh scott pilgrim is my favorite i, like, I, watched, I watched favorite. it i watched it recently and i love pretty no, I'm just going to say it. I love every aspect of that film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the way that the text is used, the way that the narrator is used. It's the way like Chris Evans is used. It, it, Chris it's Evans the is most used. Edgar Wright the film. Visual, I yeah, it is. The, uh-huh. It's visually pleasing. The it, music is amazing. It strikes my fancy. <laughs> we it's have just, sex bomb. Yeah, it's bombs. just everything about it. What did I say? You said bombs. I said but some people oh. call them bombs. Anyway, but bombs. Kaylin. Anyway. Uh, I'm gonna start. With the one that Tom's gonna hop on, of Miyazaki. I've been hopping on everybody's. I know it's it's fine, and when when choosing directors, I actually had both a hard and an easy time. I just thought of what directors do I know of, because I don't know of many. So when I lightweight thought of doing Miyazaki, I'm like, God damn it, Kaylin's probably gonna do it. Uh (laughs) Yes, correct. Um, And really. I didn't really know anything about directors for the longest time. You're welcome. Thanks, Tom. Because I've helped it's you with all nothing. to do with you. <laughs> She's like, I Every haven't learned time. shit from Tom. Not at all. <laughs> um, no, what I thought about was who had the most impact on me from films that I've seen and whose name came up every time. And the the two people, well, I guess we're only saying one at the time. But uh, Miyazaki was so interesting. Who's Who's Miyazaki? It's, say the full name. You almost did it. I almost did it. Well, I want what? you to say that's why. Hayao? Hayao? I just call it Hayao. Hey, y'all. Wow. Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, Miyazaki. Yeah, I struggle with saying his first name, which is why I'm like, Miyazaki. He did Don't films such as? The first one. Uh, he did films such as Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away, My oh. Neighbor Totoro, uh, Princess Mononoke, all the Ghibli films, 
Say the one. His favorite. Say Kiki's delivery service. Kiki, I actually haven't seen that yet. Uh, it's my favorite. We're going. Um, but uh, so there's so much intentional, intentional choices that are in there that I it like hit me in the face. I had never been so intrigued by so many purposeful decisions. I actually bought a book on Miyazaki that are it's just a compilation of all the interviews with Miyazaki and he's a very mm. interesting person. He's so he told well, his was, son he's was, a terrible filmmaker. Was, he didn't say <laughs> yeah. that. He said I think my son made an honest film. Now that he's made one, I think he should stop. Um wow. yeah, he's he's a his he his is, opinions are harsh. I saw a, mm. preparing for I saw a documentary where it was just him and his son was doing uh his first film, right? Uh, no, it was after his as after his film, his first film, because he had commercial success but not critical success. And it was the next film. It was supposed to be Hayao wrote the screenplay for it, and then Goro Goro directed. Miyazaki was going to direct it. And part of directing in Studio Ghibli is that the director does the storyboards, right? Uh, and those are sometimes eighty thousand storyboards. There's a lot, uh, or like hundreds of thousands of storyboards. Anyways, but like he would talk to everyone in the studio except his son. For the entire production. Oh. It would like their relationship is intense. It's messed up. Hmm. Uh the producer, I forget his name, but he's like the big middleman between everybody and wow. Miyazaki. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because a, yeah. based on based on what I've read, like it makes sense that every scene can be purposeful. Also oh, yeah. because he takes so much ownership over everything. He's like, You want something done right, you're gonna do it yourself. And he yeah, does. He does. Hmm. Um He's got the shit to back it up with. He does. <laughs> it's still like that's like, he's still a bit of a character. character. It's yeah, he's intense. I'm being real Midwest nice about this well, right now. Yeah, I was say, <laughs> wow. The thing is, like, we're trying to respect his craft, right? right? Like, but the thing is, like, in normal society, it's asshole moves. It's yeah. really also a different culture. Well, yeah, very different culture. Like, have you uh, seen Jiro the, the sushi? Yeah. And like the whole thing with the dad being like the top sushi chef and Hayao being like this top animator, like everyone in the world already has this ideology that the son is not going to be even half as good. Right. Like that's just something that the Japanese culture buys into. In America, we don't have that ideology. No. Mm -hmm. um, but then that's a kind of respect and understanding that gives to higher praise and understanding of like the engagement that we should have with media. Mm. Um. But yeah, like it was like he was there during the the film that Goro was directing and he was looking at one of the background artists and on the background was like drew this like open field and then he put the, the truck over it because they do multi-layer animation mm -hmm. and he said that truck's too big. That truck's going to take up the entire frame and then you just see the animator just slowly put it away <gasps> and it's just like such like a intense moment because you're kind of like this is how they, they work and operate, right? And then he'll like look at storyboards and he'll like, it's like this person looked like they're look they just saw a dead person. And it's like, this person should be full of life. Like, why are these things not full of life? Why is it not that understanding? But it's kind of, again, it's those signatures. Yeah. Mm. Right. So, and I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say that, like, I remember uh, it was like these guys were really excited to show Miyazaki these, like, what they had made in, in graphics. And it was like a zombie that was, like, dragging itself across the floor. And, like, the, the movements were really lifelike. Miyazaki was pissed. Whoa. More than a little. He was like, I have a friend who is disabled and can never walk um, again. How dare you show this to me? He went off on them. Like, you could tell everyone was, like, wide-eyed staring at the floor. And that's, like, it, it's one of those things where there's so much about Miyazaki that I 
truly, truly love. But it's a situation where you have to separate the art there, from the artist. Well, no, there are just some things that he will never be capable of making, too. I'm, like, because he hates that kind of a thing. Uh, of thing, aesthetic. we're never going to see that kind of aesthetic from Miyazaki. Yeah, not that I'm upset about that. Yeah, at all. and but uh, go ahead. no, I was just going to say, bringing it back to to him as a director, what what specifically do you what draws you to him as your favorite director? Um, the fantastical realities that he creates. I gave myself little like two lines or a couple lines for each director that I really like. And fantastical reality was the first thing that came to mind because everything is set in a very real world. Like, even though it has all the, like, whimsy of, you know... Shintoism. uh, Yeah, Shintoism, it's got... But it's all very grounded. Like, he does a very good job of taking all of these these concepts that are never would never be real in this world mm-hmm. yeah. but makes them feel like oh yeah that makes sense like a radish <laughs> yeah, like a is. radish person yeah. yeah like a radish the radish spirit he takes a little spark and can make it into an entire story I th- yeah like I th- calcifer yeah i think it goes to to, to mention that like <laughs> it's too easy you set it, it up i had to spike it he grew up during uh, he grew up after the 40s so after the devastation of japan and all that stuff of uh, war um, I honestly kind of would say like this. He's a combination of Walt Disney and Tolkien. Yeah. Ooh, um, that's yeah. really good. And yeah. uh, what he does, he tries to do, is try to make really honest stories. And actually, uh, shout out to Nerd on Nation patron. Uh, <laughs> love Hammer, Ian. Uh, he really kind of slapped me across the face and said, the reason why I will always choose a Ghibli film over a Disney film is because Ghibli isn't infatuated with lies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, and... I felt kind of bad, but like the more we're talking, like I felt kind of bad to point out that there's some problems with Miyazaki, but at the same time, I feel like that's almost more appropriate. It's kind of like more, to me, it's more charming because you know that there there's flaws in his human. Right. And that he is a one human being. And then he does, he has such a strict rule for what he does. But like the. It may inform some of his well, decisions. Exactly. Uh, he's so, also very open so, about those things. So he's. Right. Not he's, like he tries to hide them. Nothing he's seen, is hidden. No. He's seen the devastation of the world and devastation of people. And he understands like the wanting and need to come back to spiritualism and the rest of the world as a whole and not be so stuck with the self. Hmm. being so stuck with like what do I want in my dreams and shit like that but like understanding like your water drop affects the ocean and understanding that there is an ocean to begin with uh I I really kind of taking a liking because the reason why he started at Toei Animation Studio then went to Nippon uh like he was not content with the style of corporate animation that they wanted. Wow. He was not content with a bunch of people who were like, let's throw this fantasy story that Hans Christian Andersen did and make a new version of it. Right. He was like, I want to tell an original story that can speak to the Japanese people about their lives mm-hmm. and about like a girl growing up in a world where she has to use her creative skills to find herself. And she loses those skills because the rest of the world doesn't appreciate who she is. You're talking about Kiki? Kiki. Fucking okay, Kiki. Is the millennial goddamn story. But also with Spirit Away, where it's like, it's the story of like a girl who has no respect and understanding for the spirits and finding that respect. But then at the end of the day, she doesn't have those memories. But instead, she'll still have that respect of family and love. Yeah. yeah. It's like those kind of things where it's like, it's also to your point where it's like, it, he is a little flawed where like sometimes it gets personal. Because, like, 
right after that, he did Howl's Moving Castle, and it's kind of like after he got spirited away, like he got the fucking Academy Award, right? And it was mm-hmm. world right. renowned. It was the number one film in Japan for grossing all of all Japan until like Your Name, and then another one came out. So mm-hmm. it's number three. Um, but then he did Howl's Moving Castle, and it's about a girl who gets cursed to become an old woman. And it's kind of like he was kind of having the, the ideology. It's like, I will never be able as good as who I was at the yesteryear. Mm-hmm. Um, and even his one of his later films, like Ghibli is named after like the wind current of change and stuff like that. Mm. Um, he did a, his one of his last films, uh, I think. Uh, I forget what the name of it is, but it's pretty much about flying. A lot of his themes around flying and stuff like yeah. that. And like he his son actually is highly inspired by him in his in a way where like up on poppy hill is his last film that he did under him and that was the one that uh Hayao wrote but it was the f- clash of the old versus the new mm-hmm. and it was like such this poetic thing that was going on yeah uh and then i think Hayao has like one film final film that he says but the joke in the modern world right now it's like this fool gonna make films when he's dead because mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> he's, he's uh, like curmudgeonly holding on to it so kiki's is mm-hmm. your favorite for sure my favorite mm, Miyazaki film, probably Spirited Away, just because from impact standpoint, mm-hmm. everything is like how it the the personal impact. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, uh, I think that's why we all have our right, favorites. right, right. It's got to be some um, sort of personal impact on you. Yeah, Spirited Away for sure. Yeah, that's like Dope. so. That's my favorite too. Yeah, it's no really, big deal. It's, it's really <laughs> good. But I haven't seen Kiki's really yet. So just, just a real cool tidbit. <gasps> just a real cool tidbit about him. His first feature film that wasn't his studio Ghibli was uh Wind Rises. Mm. Not Wind Rises. It was uh Nausicaa. Nausicaa, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. One. And it's based off a manga he was writing at the same Side time. Side note, I actually just went to a lecture on this guy. I think his name was uh Kazuhiko, I can't remember his last name. Uh, Matsurai. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but he actually made the the plane from Nasca. Oh shit! Like That's for real. Oh wow. He he made it's. It took him sixteen years. Like a full size plane. Full size. Jesus. Can, I don't even know what it looks can like. Can fly but like... it. Plane. Oh, like wow. a function. Oh, wow. He didn't just yes. build a prop. No, no, no. Right. He built the whole thing. Oh, that's dope. Like for real. And I kind of freaked out. It's actually the plane is here in California right now. Where should go see it? Um, um, yes. This so is the you last should thing look that up because it's amazing. About Miyazaki, uh, because I've gotten your opinion. I know you guys are sharing this director. What about his films drew you to them? Uh, for me, I actually like. I feel like there's. Uh, we talked about it on our Spirit Away episode. Check that out. Um, he has a deliberateness with pace. Mm-hmm. A deliberateness mm-hmm. with. You like letting things breathe, letting things breathe, but also understanding like music, um, which he isn't a fan of using music is actually a lot of the times in his films, but he understands, but he understands when he needs to use it, but when he uses it, he lets it play. And so understanding like when a character looks up at the wind and looks up at the sky and music plays, they're not just looking for no reason. They're not daydreaming, but it's like, they're not going to come up and say like, I wish I wasn't, uh, uh, my dad was mad at me or I, I wish I wasn't enslaved as a I like princess. That. I hope they say, I wish I wasn't my dad mad at me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that shit. It was very much like, just like popping up I and going, even, I'm not wearing that. Oh, no. In a director's episode. How? Very good. Wow. Very I think the thing I really like about it is like all his stories don't surround around a princess and they're not about loving right. a prince. And they're very much like individualistic stories. Like I think the only, the biggest difference out of all of them is probably Totoro. 
Mm. And that's like such like a fairy tale story. It was made at the same time as Grave of the Fireflies, which his producer ended up directing. And those are made at the same time. Um, You okay? Grave of the Fireflies is so upsetting. So it's crazy, and they're starkly different. But yeah. uh, Totoro is the reason it got so popular. Is the reason why Ghibli that's their fucking that's their that's Mickey their Mouse. mascot. That's yeah. their Mickey Mouse, right? That's their Bugs Bunny. Um, yeah. But like the way that he does things with his story and his characters, they're all typically strong female lead characters that mm-hmm. don't need any saving, and like they are pretty much going through their own personal journeys without. Again, it's not without them being saved. It's about them understanding the world around them at large. Yeah. Most of the time they save someone. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit more, I think to me that's more poignant. I think that would resonate with me, especially since it was an anime or it, it like brought me into anime in that sense. And it like, it made me so like nothing has to be high octane action. It doesn't have to be like save this or save the world or this person's going to die. It's like, no, if you don't do this, it's fine. You'll live on and move mm-hmm. on another day. But the entire world behind you, the entire forest, those spirits will die. Yeah. And it's like, you'll be fine in your car. Yeah. Like once you leave this world. And it's like, that's a crazy thing that I left with. That's awesome. Caitlin? It sounds good. Yeah, that's, that's a good it. answer. It's so good. Uh, Is that you're going to take that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, as soon as you take it yes. right now. I have an idea. Okay. <gasps> Only because I know that Tom, I know that your list kind of mix. <laughs> I think we should start. Now you go to your next yeah. person, and then I'm and done. Then whoever, <laughs> and then whoever can add, it's he mixes. Uh, with yeah, you. he shares with me. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Why don't we, we share do that together. and then yeah, yeah. kind of yes. move? Uh, so uh, my boy Christopher Nolan, Chris Nolan. Can you say that? One more time. Reaction. What, what, I was what, gonna say is that would you consider him one of being someone who wants to be a director? Would you say he's your idol? Oh, he's for sure. The thing is, it's tough. The thing I think about idols, though, short answer, yes. Long answer is when people say, oh, are you excited to be the next Bruce Lee to to Jackie Chan? What does Jackie Chan say? No. I never want to be the next Bruce Lee. I want to be the first Jackie Chan. Chan. Yeah, but I just mean, is he someone you look to as an inspiration? I I look up to him so much because the thing is like this. So this is where my spiel starts. Christopher Nolan fucking started out. He never fucking went to film school. Everything what? he learned is self-taught. Really? Yeah. He wow. was the best news he, I've heard today. He went to he stu- he went to school to study English uh-huh. because he didn't uh-huh. have film school. And so everything he learned is in the camera. And what I mean by in camera is when, hey, we have some money. Let's go some weekend. Let's get some friends. Let's go to a friend's house and shoot a film. Also, I don't have lights and I can't uh, match color temperatures. So we're going to shoot next to a window. But guess what? We're going to shoot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't do it, uh-huh. and so he didn't have any understanding of it. So he literally learned all in the in the scope of. A he learned by doing. He learned by doing. Which is really cool. Hell uh, yeah! And I was so excited about the this. thing about that. So he mm-hmm. he did like some short films. He went to Cannes and all that stuff, but he wasn't getting any praise. He like fucking submitted, 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 and through the dawn of people like Kevin Smith and other indie filmmakers who self funded their own shit, he decided to make following. And after following, then he got some critical acclaim at like Venice and other film festivals. And then he finally got Memento. Mm. Then he got to Insomnia. Then he got to Batman Begins. Then Mm. Prestige. Then Dark Knight. Then uh, Inception. Then Dark Knight Rises. Then Interstellar. Then finally Dunkirk. Um, But with that being said, so he's done like 11 films so far. Fuck you, Tarantino, and your nine film bullshit. Um, But uh, the thing about him I love. So trademarks about him again. So his orc, his he usually tries to run with a tight knit group: Nathan Crowley, uh, Wally Pfister, uh, Jonathan Nolan, all being part of his like crew that he usually works with. Uh, he has a big knack for getting like high list celebrities after like big fame points. So like after Memento, 
uh, like when he got Memento, it was right after the Matrix series, and Carrie Ann Moss is in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was like mm-hmm. huge, and that pretty much helped sell the movie. And then since Carrie Ann Moss is in there, my boy Cipher mm-hmm. is in that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later on, after that, got Al Pacino, late Robin Williams, and Hilary Swank, all three Academy Award nominees Ooh. and winners. Yeah. Like in his second feature film yep. from a studio from Warner mm-hmm. Bros. And they were like, do it. And in Insomnia, he didn't use any storyboards. Huh. He didn't do any pre-production I meetings. He that. just shot. And I was like, you know what? And so I was telling Corey on the way here, I was like, I in- inherently did not know that I've been like kind of following in his footsteps. Not because like I tried to. And I know he did it for a purposeful reason, but like just because I'm poor. Yeah. Um, oh. And like I would shoot, like I would love to shoot in daytime. Most of the time when we shoot storyboard shit, the ones that I full on direct and no one else helps direct are all night stuff, and I hate it because it's like I gotta figure out how I'm gonna like this bullshit. Uh, or, it's okay, because then I have to figure out how to color it, so I'm with you. But then, but the, and the 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 one film, the one film that I got the most praise for, Bags and Buses. Is all shot during the day and it looks fucking pretty. Yeah, because yeah. light. Because light. You can turn your ISO down. Light. Cause, like, oh, there's no grain. Because Nolan this? typically likes to use naturalistic color, and so yeah. do I. Because I hate the ideology of satur- like not saturation, but like fake. I don't like it when like everything's super super lit. Like I work at a job and they're like, "Why is it so dark?" I was like, "What's wrong with darkness? What's wrong with shadows? What's wrong with there being like <laughs> Ali, shadows did you in just the make eyes?" That a thing? That's, you just made what's it a wrong thing? with darkness? Yeah. What's wrong with darkness? Shout out to the night. There's nothing. <laughs> Shout out exactly. to the night. <laughs> um, but like, so he he likes using naturalistic colors, Murphy. natural stuff. The only things that he'll usually increase in vibrance are green and blues. Um, but mm. he. In terms of score, he doesn't like to use any music or license any of his songs. He likes to use very industrial, cerebral music. That's what it's been, quote-unquote, noted as. Industrial, Zimmer-ish cerebral yeah, music. Well, before him, but yeah. Some might say. Some might uh, say. Some might. They kind of they, oh they kind of have a droning sound, but they, they're technically called industrial. Um, but what he likes to do, and something I like to do, is high contrast. And mm-hmm. so he likes to have the whites and the blacks. Oh, and so who else he, do I know that likes to do high contrast on their uh, movies? Is oh, that's it, right. It's you, Tom. Okay. Uh, but then the thing is, that what he likes to do is have muted colors on his clothing. And so that typically his cast is white people. Wow. But so that their their faces contrast against their, their, their clothing so that you get better face expressions out of it. Mm. So I'm like, that's fucking smart. And I'm like, oh, I like that shit too. And then also like he doesn't like to do a lot of blocking unless it's very necessary. At least when he was first starting out. And I guess I'm still starting out. And he likes the actors to organically find their places. And I'm like, yes, because the Mm -hmm. actors know the fucking scene. And Mm -hmm. then he'll try to strategically find where the camera lies. Um, And that's that's one thing I really love about that. And I, to me, if I would say there's a finite theme in his films is the play of time. Mm. Is how time works with uh, with his characters. But also... uh, all his lead actors are tragic people who are mourning over the death of a wife or are mourning over the death of somebody. Um, and that they're all trying to create their own truth in some way. Hmm. Memento, he's trying to create or find tattoos. purpose out of it, yeah. Uh, but- in Al Pacino, he's trying to rewrite literally that like he killed his fucking partner. In the- Al Pacino? Spoilers. In In the movie Al Pacino that everyone's been watching for the oh, past yeah. 40 years. <laughs> The the time thing you mentioned is is spot on. Like yeah. it's there's something to it, and it carries into uh, his choice for like uh, for for yeah, score. Uh, like it's almost like the score is just reminding you that time's ticking, things are happening. And one of my favorite uses of him as a director is when he ties two scenes together with 
music. Like the music doesn't change, but just it just changes to the next scene because that's the next narrative thing you need. And it shares the same tone and the share and the same like urgency as the previous scene. I eat that stuff up like that. Yeah. He, he, him, and his brother, uh, they're like close in age, but then they were born uh, not. They were born across the pond, but Christopher Nolan has a Welsh accent, and his younger brother does not because they were mm. both raised in Chicago. Mm. Right. Uh, and so it's really funny where it's like one's one's use like one's British, one's not. It's like wait, no, they're both really. How the fuck does this happen? It's like one just chooses to use an accent, one doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really interesting, interesting that how that happens. But the thing about Nolan that I really admire is the way him and Jonathan Nolan want to do dialogue. And the thing about that that I found is such a weird yeah. crutch, but it's actually to me quite ingenious. Again, he's finding all these weird loopholes. He has such <laughs> heady exposition because they're very intricate topics. And so he gets away with someone being like, I'm here to tell you the exposition. Michael Caine. <laughs> and he Michael says, Caine. first is the pledge. Then is the turn. Then is the prestige. Hey, here's the gravity problem in Interstellar. Hey, right. this is the crime problem in Batman. I was like, holy shit. He gets that all out of the way because... Because Michael Caine is awesome at exposition. But mm-hmm. also, it's just mm-hmm. like... Either him or Morgan Freeman, and you got one of them. So. He plays... The way that he chooses his films and which ones he wants to do, because most of the time he'll work with his brother, but sometimes, like, with uh, Prestige, he was given the book. And he's like, hey, do you want to make a movie out of this? And then he's like, yeah, sure. This is after Insomnia. And then they had to do Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. And then later on, he's like, let's go back to this. And he realized, like, oh, there's a, sh- a ton of movie you could do with this. There's different types of movies you could do with it. But he realized, like, this is how we're going to have to do the movie. So he's pretty methodical in the sense of, like, the way that the movie's been going to have to be told, I need to make sure that the momentum is going. But also when I'm doing exposition, it's not like you never get – typically you should never get lost. I've, I've been in movie theaters with people who watch an Nolan film. They're like, oh, I didn't get it. And I'm like – I don't know if you're attention. stupid or not. Though. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. So, so Tom, we this all my, know my old roommate. your favorite Nolan film is? The Prestige. Uh, and mm. I'm going to change the question to you because you guys are sharing this director. Yeah. Favorite Nolan film? Uh, oh, Jessica Chastain. My favorite Nolan film <laughs> is <laughs> The Dark Knight. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, and it, uh, it is also, also my favorite movie of all time. Oh, wow. Okay. So there you go. I, I, uh, I'm going to ask why to both of you for those films. Why those films in particular? Choose who goes first. Well, I do want to add real quick. I know we've been, we talked, we talked a Tom. little bit about yeah. uh, auteur in the beginning of it. And some people, the purest film people that I went to school with and all that stuff, would say, like, he's not an auteur in some senses. And some people would say, like, using the word auteur in such a flamboyant way is kind of, like, misleading and all that stuff. And some, I think most directors don't call themselves that unless they really want to be. And I think for us people who are watching it the layman and all that stuff or people who dabble in that stuff it's interesting to kind of label that in that sense uh because he's highly collaborative in it in in those mm-hmm. forms that he works with a certain crew and those certain crew like know how to establish meaning that he wants out of it because um, he doesn't use the same cinematographer anymore he uses a mm-hmm. uh, hoita van hoit um, i would say he's not an yeah tour, but i still think he has obviously he has signature things he does i i would say he has such creative control it's hard to argue both i would yeah. say the closest he got to exemplifying if you if you were to make the argument from being out here is inception i think yeah inception like from to me it would be like from memento right to inception to mm-hmm. understand like those two like oh okay and then also to interstellar in that sense interstellar inception is the one that he's been like writing for that he had been writing for a decade before yeah before wow. he made it or whatever and yeah. so like i feel it's the most imbued with like him 
like what the movie that he wanted to make. And it's and it kind of it resonates and you can see it, you know, throughout the there's, other movies. There's too. textbooks that talk about it. Uh, yeah. but answering the question, what was it? Which one why is it there a favorite? Why is it your favorite? Go ahead, sir. Uh the dirt <laughs> <laughs> Just to throw a curveball in there. Batman. Tom? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. That is, all joking aside, that is a big part. But uh, it's the way, of course, it's the reason why Tim Burton's Batman isn't my favorite is because of the way Nolan handles it. So it's the way it's written, the way it's presented. Um, so kind of grounding it. Grounded. Yeah. And Nolan is just, it's funny that there's a scene uh, in The Dark Knight where the Joker is like, I don't like to use guns, I use knives. Or guns are too quick. You miss all the little emotions. Yeah, you learn who uh, people you people learn who are really. before they die. And I feel like he's so good in, in in his work and his in his camera work to just catch those like little moments, those little emotions that the characters are. Oh like, yeah, expressing. like the first time you see Joker's face, first time he takes he, the yeah. mask off. Yeah, and and there's a second where like it cuts back to him, and and he's making a face or whatever, and, mm-hmm. he, and he leaves the leaves the shot, and it just. Every shot seems very deliberate, intentional. The pacing is on point. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and because of the kind of movie that you have with Dark Knight, it creates this like very like gripping suspense that just holds on to you and like does not let go yeah. for a good portion of this movie. And anytime you feel like you're safe from any kind of something, a dead body hits the window. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that one made, by the way, that part makes me that jump every, every time. time. Yeah. yeah, every time. Oh. Even if you know don't it's expect coming. it. Well, there's a lot of sound that comes along with it too. Yeah. Yeah. And then just like, it's a hilarious movie. Like it's just, it's just funny. Like the people, the the levity in it is the dead is bodies not hitting the windows. Hilarious. It's hilarious. Like, like you think exactly. you just take in, take my money? Yeah. Well, my one of my favorite is like <laughs> my favorite line. Forty two calibers, carbon fiber, made in China. If yeah. you want to kill a public servant, I recommend you buy American. Yeah. <laughs> like that. But I wasn't finished. Cla- <laughs> but I wasn't finished, right? Yeah. A little fighting. I like that. They're gonna love me. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. I hear you got a hell of a right cross. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Gordon. See, that's the problem is with me because I've seen it so many times. I can like quote. Quote the whole thing. Not a problem. Tom uh, for uh, prestige. Uh, Batman versus Wolverine. Uh, but, um, Fair. Versus Black Widow. Uh, and yeah. also, true. Ollie is like extra fair. Uh, versus extra fair. Caesar the Ape. Also, what's his name from Labyrinth? Caesar versus, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, but the prestige. David Bowie from Labyrinth. The Bulge. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> All right. The, prestige. The prestige for me is, it speaks very personally to me, just a story of two brothers. rivals. Oh. Just two brothers. <laughs> um, <laughs> two rivals, uh, magicians who are trying to create magic in the world. And in their plight and sought after like the best trick and try to outdo each other, they lose themselves in some way. One person tries to be the best. The other person is just trying to make ends meet so that they can have a family. Um, mm-hmm. But the person that has a family and love loses it in, in order to beat the other one. And then the other one loses all that because he's hiding a dark secret because his trick that no one else can replicate um, destroys his entire life. And there's a line in there to me that sums up everything I think about the world is that he's like, they're, they're trying to figure out this other magician's trick, and then Christopher, Christian Bale understands it immediately because he understands the ideology of personal self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And Hugh Jackman's character doesn't because he just knows how to be a good showman. He'll understand magic at a certain extent, but then he won't understand the innate understanding of how to keep a secret to yourself mm-hmm. and how to keep those lies from everyone. Mm. And Christian Bale's character, Alfred Borden, says he knocks on the fucking brick wall. He says, that's what it takes to get out of all of this. 
and he's talking about the life. He's talking about like having to pinch for pennies and do shows for two bit hacks that he he knows that he's more talented than, and like that's. It, it's a lot of self-sacrifice and they both have two different understandings of what sacrifice means. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's those, it's the fighting of ideology, but guess what? There's not one fight scene in the movie, but instead you get to see them work and maneuver around narratively how their lives get turned and twisted upside down. Yeah. And also it plays with, again, non-linear storytelling and that's Nolan's like strength. Yeah. His yeah. fucking strength is non-linear storytelling. So you get enough a backstory from any character you want just to get you to the next scene. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And what else do you get? Exposition uh, by exposition. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. <laughs> one of my, uh, this was created by a wizard. One of my favorite moments in The Dark Knight is at the very end. Um, where in, in this kind of concept, um, like I'd never thought about Batman this way. And it's when he says Sexually. Our, our tagline kind of or whatever. Oh. Yeah. Uh, that he's the hero that Gotham des- deserves. deserves. He's not, deserves. not the one he needs right now. Yeah. Which means that he can be whatever Gotham needs him to be at that moment. I kill yeah. those people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he like he becomes like he takes the, dark the, the like he becomes the villain. Yeah. Because Guardian. he needs to to preserve Gotham. The order. Dent and yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and win. that was just like like I already loved Batman, but after that I was just like mm-hmm. I'm in love with Batman. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? What was that? Can you do that one more time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd say you're in love with Batman. And then what's Slightly. the last shot? Batman's ass. Yeah. Batman's ass, baby. <laughs> Was it? You'll have to watch Cyber it, won't you? Protector. I'm excited. <laughs> rubber nips night. and rubber butts. You have America's ass and you have Gotham's ass. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Nolan, there's just a lot of respect. And I think the great thing about him is that he's only shown confidence in what he's doing. And Warner Brothers really fucking like works with him. And they mm-hmm. even work with, beside Paramount to get funding for his films no matter what it is. And guess what? None of his films are over $200 million. Oh, man. I wish I had I'm sorry. a million what? dollars. None of his films have like, in terms of budget. No, no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm still like. Don't cost more than $200 million. That all amazes them, the, me. All of them are like lower than $200 million. Which like, yeah. He's able to do so much because he loves to do things practically. Mm-hmm. He recreated the engine. No, because what that shows me is that means that the it's it's done right the first time. It's planned. Yeah. It's, it's well very organized and it's well executed. Yeah. So well, like, with that. There's a, there's a, no spoilers. There's a helicopter shot where a helicopter crashes. Okay, that's not good. Yeah. Yes, it's not my good. favorite exactly, line. Exactly, rack them up, rack them up, rack them up. It's not his favorite line. It's not, it's not my favorite line, but uh, I love that this, um, the effect is the helicopter hits the ground. It, it like bumps the buildings, yeah. hits the ground, explodes, and then tumbles away. You would think that the explosion and tumbling away is the CG, but like that's the practical thing, and mm-hmm. then the, Helicopter falling is all CG, and then it switches between. So it's like the mix. Yeah, he's one of those smart. people who knows how to mix smart. it right. Yeah, well, like the big thing. Like so, in Inception, he recreated uh, uh, Kubrick's uh, uh, Space Odyssey two thousand two thousand one thing that allows you to gyro. So they attach the camera to the actual set, and they rotate the set and the not gimbal. the person. Yeah. The gimbal. Um, a lot of his like uh, inspirations come from Kubrick, uh, Michael Mann. As well as fucking criminy, I had yeah. all the names. If, in my and head. if somebody out there has not, if you like Inception and you have not seen the behind the scenes of how they did the the hallway fight, fight scene, room, pretty incredible. Fight, yeah, go look it up. It's freaking hmm. insane. The anti gravity <laughs> fight scene. And to, yeah, and to and to discount that, like, oh yeah, of course you want to do a practical, but like the ideology just to do it that way 
it goes back, and I actually want to talk about Insomnia because, like, that's really looked over a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. There's a good scene that Al Pacino yeah, answers. I've only f- seen it once. Al Pacino answers Al Pacino movie. Yeah, uh, Al Pacino answering <laughs> uh, answering the phone, and he has to give this like understanding that like something happened and something terrible is going on, and he puts the phone down. They use the widest anamorphic lens they could possibly find. And put it right in his face because they know that it gives you a wider frame. Mm-hmm. And you should typically be like maybe 20 feet away from your subject. But then they threw it right in his face Whoa. knowing that they would give him so much. To create a claustrophobic look mm-hmm. in a wide lens. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> not a wide, not a claustrophobic look with a telephoto lens. A claustrophobic with the wide lens. Because you're not supposed to do that with the wide lens. No. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to catch like it, landscapes. It alters the edges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he did that. And he like… Al Pacino literally had to act with the camera as close to his as, as the mic is to my face. Oh, and so he had to like do that and just like understand like he couldn't move, and that's kind of things where it's like he's experimental in some ways, and they only paid off, yeah. and that's a crazy thing. Like another staple you'll get is that he likes to create grand scope. So mm-hmm. those transportation talk scenes we're talking about with uh, Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes to do that with like a train going through the Colorado Hills, like during like the eighteen hundreds, or like. Um, a, uh, a, a plane getting dis- disappearing into the Arctic winter. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, yeah. Then uh, Dark Knight Rises, the opening scene of that is the like they show the plane and just the angle that the plane is going in. It's like at the bottom of the frame, mm-hmm. and then you have this giant like sky and mountains like scape behind like behind the uh, plane, and it just creates this insane sense of scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it really works. It gives you that scale of like where the human lies amongst the world that there he's trying to present to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. cool. I dig it. So much Batman. Yeah. So much. Not enough as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Well, we're getting it. But we'll talk about that soon. soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh? For sure. Am, am I going to continue yeah. the train? Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, very hard to pick, but I had to call back to my my favorite movie of all time is The Big Lebowski. Mm. And uh, uh, so the Coen brothers. So I get two and one. Wow. No. Um, so two they're down to three and he, or two and he did three. Yeah. Well, so, you can say two equal yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Coen brothers. Because um, they're only that good. Very good. The, the thing about the Coen brothers is, I'm going to be real honest, I did not used to like their movies. Oh. Um, I just couldn't get into them whatsoever. And then the Big Lebowski came along where somebody was like, hey, have you seen this movie? And I was like, no. Nah. And I watched it. And Your eyes were I, opened? It, it, in a sense, like I watched it and I was like, my friend at the time, my, my shout out to your friend at the time, uh, Buzz, who I've mentioned oh, on the show. Shout out to Buzz. Uh, With the dope he, last he was just like, you know, you got to see this movie. And I watched it. And at first I was like, this is really interesting. But it was more of like a science experiment where I was like, I need to find out why my friend likes this movie so much. Like, I, hmm. I can't pass something along and go, why does he, why did I not have the same reaction? Mm-hmm. So I watched it again, and I watched it again, and I watched it again, and I started to notice all the little nuances. It's the kind of the story that they tell. It's the uh, what is actually happening, a, a usually a crime gone wrong. It's kooky dialogue. It's stuff like that. Yeah. And then I started to go back and watch other Coen Brother movies. And when new Coen Brother movies come out, I'm like, I see what you did I, I there. I get it now. Mm-hmm. I get it now. And it really... I get it. It yeah. almost I, sounds. I like, saw Fargo recently, a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, "I totally get it now." Yeah, so it kinda, and I dig it a lot. Great it kind of <laughs> sounds like you broke yourself down. 
I, yeah. <laughs> like I had to just force feed this until I understood. I kept it. eating t- eating tomatoes even though I hate them, and now I like tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it, you also, it, I mean, in a sense, it, it was one of those things because Coen Brothers, I knew up to that point, were they were held in high esteem, and I just didn't get it. I was just like, it's. Was this I the felt they were kind days? of they they were kind of boring. Oh wow! I mean, and I I think they mainly had a lot of cult classic esteem. Yeah, not really like Hollywood big buzz esteem. Yeah, until recently. And like, I mean, you have movies I mean, Fargo like Fargo was a big success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have movies like The Big Lebowski, Raising Arizona. I mean, that is just I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, Oh Brother, Where Out Where Art Thou? That's where they burn got me. after reading. Like, there's there's they movies also, that are just so amazing. Now that I have, men. yeah. Country, now that I have like this. The understanding that I developed after getting so into the Big Lebowski, that it um, it really opened my eyes to all of their stuff, and it's really hard to. I, I don't have as much of the film language as Tom May. Um, what just, do you I, mean, the language? <laughs> <laughs> I just really Here's, enjoy watching. I'm gonna throw something out there real quick. They yeah. work with a guy named Roger Deakins. Uh, yeah, I to, oh, yeah. go for it. Well, I was just gonna say they always, they essentially always Roger use Deacon. Roger Deakins. The, the thing, uh, the other thing about Coen Brothers movies is they're also beautiful, hmm. and he mm-hmm. has been nominated for so many Oscars, and finally only won this or last year, twenty eighteen, for Blade Runner twenty fourteen. Twenty eighteen, right? I saw him. Oh, you he got won it for, 20, for the twenty seventeen oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. film. Yeah. Um, right. But uh, it's just so amazing to just even if you just watch the films uh, with the sound off and you're not really paying attention to the story, just paying attention to how it looks. With a, so, go ahead. So the funny thing about Roger Deakins, he's not all about like I'm making every frame beautiful. Because yeah. he said that in the interview, he's like, "That's not my job. Yeah. My job mm. is to tell the story. If he happens to do that, he happens." So here's yeah. and he what, knows how what I was going to say about Roger Deakins is he has a way. We've spoke a lot about dialogue in this episode, and he has a, way, a specific way that he and the Coens shoot dialogue. And what you would typically do in a film when you're shooting a two person scene, let's say two people at a table talking, you'll put the camera over someone's shoulder. You'll get them to kind of dirty the frame, and you'll get the person who's speaking. Dirty you know, the frame means be in it. Yeah, sorry. You'll mm-hmm. get you'll get their shoulder and the, maybe the back of their head in the frame, and you see the other person talking, and you get oh mm-hmm. they're talking to that person. Um, what the Coen Brothers and what Deacon especially likes to do is instead of a standard lens, he likes to switch it to a wide angle hmm. uh, and put it in between them. Hmm. So the oh, other put person, it inside the dialogue. It, he likes to live within the scene, within the the conversation, as opposed to outside it, because it gives you a different. Perspective, perspective, I, and a different feeling, a different understanding. You're more present in the conversation I, that way. I took that from him for half a glass. Did you? I did it over your shoulder, over Dana's shoulder, and then at the her last dialogue, I put it inside, so mm-hmm. it was pointing only at her. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because it allows, again, it's allowing you to be pay attention now, child. This is the point where the, the story's going to turn now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. the thing about Coen Brothers, they in terms of dialogue, a lot of the dialogue to me, in my sense. Is very nonsensical. No one talks yeah. like that as human beings. Yeah. Bonafide. Uh, what do you mean? To fin- I want to just finish that point. The reason uh, beyond that uh, is if you pay attention, the reason I like to use a wide angle lens is their set dressing is very intentional. Mm-hmm. And the reason they use a wide angle is there are things in the background of whatever character is speaking, if they're in their office or whatever, that tell you exactly everything you need to know about who's talking, even if it's just a side character. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, I forget exactly what think it's in Fargo uh, but everything at, at behind and on uh, William H. Macy's desk is always in frame the first time you see him so that you know exactly what kind of person he is hmm. and I think it's just a really unique take on it and it really brings those dialogue scenes to life and you have actors within these movies that 
you I think that you get to see a new side of them, a different side of oh, them yeah. than what you're used to. Yeah, uh, very much. I mean, George Clooney seeing his humorous <laughs> size, side. I mean, Brad Pitt. Um, Jeff Bridges. I mean, I just fucking love Jeff well, Bridges. even Jeff Bridges from Big Lebowski to Jeff Bridges in True Grit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which fucking is also the comedy. Different. Yeah. So it's it's very... I just really enjoy watching their movies now with a with a different understanding. I don't have the language for it, but I, I can just go, yeah. I, I dig this. I would say I would give him fucking top credits making Haley Steinfeld a fucking star at 15. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Getting yeah. her Academy nominated for best leading yeah. actress as 15-year-old. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. I mean, to answer the question that we were answering for this, my favorite, as I've said, is Big Lebowski. And I, I think it is. It's Jumped on I was going to ask it. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, what is it about the Big Lebowski? I think it's just interesting to watch this guy that isn't very smart. He's essentially he's the main character of this film, and he's not very smart. He is kind of kooky in in himself as a character, but all of the other characters around him are kookier. Are equally not as smart. Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's just like that's just like your opinion, man. man. And I (laughs) I also them white Russians, babe. And I ah, my life works in Big Lebowski quotes. Like I feel like my brain. I'll hear somebody speak, (laughs) and and I'm like Ted quotes. And Bill and Ted. Yeah, that's. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Um, but Big Lebowski, I'm like, that's just like your opinion, man. Or I like your style, dude. Mm-hmm. I like your style too, man. Am I the Got only that one whole cowboy thing. Follows the fucking rules. <laughs> Calmer Shut than the you fuck are. Fuck up, Donnie. You got your element. Donnie's my when favorite. Some, one. When something goes uh, wrong, I'm like, fuck it, dude. Let's go bowling. Yeah, I'm a Dapper Dan man. Yeah. Anyway, did so, you go bowling a lot? I did. Did you I, drink white Russians a lot? I did. Yeah. Wow. When I was in my in my. Lebowski. Uh, I don't know. No one studies. No one has obviously listening has been in his. Uh, there's a lot of rugs in your house. <laughs> yeah, they really they do tie the room. They really do tie the room. I <laughs> wish we could have a rug in here, but it would just be. We do have we a rug in here, but it's it would tie the room together. Oh yeah, it's it's tiny. Is, yeah, it's very tiny. Um, yeah, it pulls the room yeah. together. It does. Uh, Caitlin. Uh, my other director is Tim Burton. Yeah, um, that was literally just like who who came to my brain first? What? I'm just singing, <laughs> doing Danny Elfman songs. <laughs> it sounded like Star Wars to me. An it probably was a little bit. <laughs> um, but the the two words that I wrote down for him were dark whimsy, and mm-hmm. I and pro- think and price tags and and price tags. I'll tell you about it. Oh, okay. Um, no, I just it's anything that's Tim Burton. You look. You look at the title and you're like, ah, Tim Burton. Someone's yeah. got a scissor is. finger somewhere. You hear the <laughs> music, you ah, hear the music, you see the title, is. and you're like, I'm in. Yep. I'm, yep. I'm buckled in for this. Well, not all of them, but uh, the ones that I wrote down that are my favorite are Edward Scissorhands, Big Fish, Corpse mm. Bride, and Batman Returns. And that was only because um, it, seen Diaper Batman? DeVito. Uh, what? Because you haven't seen Batman? Diaper DeVito. No, just. <laughs> Yes, Ollie, just thank you. everything was so specific. Oh, like yeah. I remember so much about that. It's very has a lot of personality. Yes, the the personality is so big. Not to say that it's. I personally love those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I love it. Them. It, it the wasn't like the best film I'd ever seen, but like the personalities in it were so big that I'm like, ha, yay! It's very gothamy yeah. in that sense. Which I love. Yes, I love yes. the very gothic ideology, the deco and all that stuff. Oh yeah, the gothic yeah. It's, it's well, it's pulling that aesthetic from 
uh, the animated series, which no, I really or appreciate. The animated series pulled from that. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Either way, I mean, it came out genius. two years afterwards. He, he just went, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just did Google. Didn't you mean? Sorry, I don't have an iPad for me. Actually. But go on about your Burton boy. But, yeah, no. And there's some of his stuff that I can't watch. Like, it creeps me out. Oh, I yeah. like it, there's that line where you can Frank and Weenie. Uh, Frank and Weenie's fine. Okay, but no, there oh, I forget what it's called. Um, he Nightmare had Before Vincent Christmas? Price. Oh, uh, hands. no, 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 no. <laughs> it was an animated thing, but it was like this Corpse. little kid is no, no, no. Oh, no. Coraline. No, oh. no, no. It's Coraline. it's this side thing that wasn't a full movie that didn't come out in that way. You'll Frank have to look Weenie, it up. The okay, short go on, film. Go on, tell about it. I don't think so. It's like this little kid is killing all of his family members and everything. It got really, oh. really dark. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yes. Yes, I know oh. what you're talking about because yeah. I, I went and saw like a special screening of Nightmare Before Christmas. Vincent. And they did that as a... Oh, it's just called Vincent? Of course yeah. it is. And they, <laughs> and they showed that before the film to just terrifying? kind of like... It's, it's really no, messed up. No, I see up. what you're talking about. Yeah. It's very <laughs> messed up. But, uh, but I, like, I like his movies because they kind of dance on that line of like, there's a lot of darkness that we're just kind of leaving out. Get ready to feel uncomfortable. But we're getting the fantastical side of dark, which yeah. which I really enjoy. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's the same thing of like Adam's family. Like they're yeah. like, oh, it's terrible, horrible, awful. It's home. There is a parody yeah. video someone made of Tim Burton directing another film, and he's like, it's just like so many tropes. He's like, all right. We need uh, spirals. We need black and white, and we need spirals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want yeah. mountains spider webs. that curl. And uh, Danny, what kind of song do you got? And Danny Elfman's on his phone. He goes, oh, uh, la, 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 la. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> diddly, 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 diddly. He's like, yeah. perfect. We'll do it. <laughs> so if you haven't seen that parody, someone I mean, look yeah, up. It's brilliant. The, but I love it. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. You can look at any, la, la, any just la, la, la. title. <laughs> even even Big Fish. You look at the title, and you're like, ah, I bet Tim Burton is involved. Well, the he, funny thing is, like, just know. he doesn't use all the same writers. The one big thing I really like, I'll take away from Big Fish is that John August wrote that, who also wrote Frankenweenie, mm. who also recently did Aladdin that we just talked about. Um, and it's a little different writing in all that sense, but the thing I was saying about ta uh, price tag is that in Dark Shadows, there's a frame where you can see the price tag on a jacket. <gasps> and I'm like, way to go, costumes. Um, wow. And then secondly, with your Batman comment, I would I would say there's a funny little story between Kevin Smith, Ollie's boy, because Kevin Smith was going to write uh, a Tim oh, Burton directed yes. Superman movie, oh, and so glorious. was J.J. Oh. Abrams. J.J. Abrams yep. going to do Superman Flyby, but this is all before that point. After uh, Christopher Reeves, unfortunately, had fallen off a horse and become paraplegic, oh. uh, and they're going to do a new story, and Nicolas Cage was going to star as Superman. Kevin Smith was going to write it, and Tim Burton said, uh, "No, no, thank you," and then did his own thing, and then. Kevin Smith did a comic book, and at the very end, Jay and Bob, or the characters, find the world, like, destroyed, and there's a Statue of Liberty uh, destroyed, uh, and they're like, oh, my God, what's happened? It's the end of the world. End credits, right? And later uh -huh. on, Tim Burton comes out with a movie called The Planet of the Apes. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the movie, they find out they're on Earth, and there's a Statue of Liberty. Well, there's a Washington uh -huh. Monument. Or, or Washington Monument. The Statue of Liberty is from the original Planet yeah, of the Apes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, something yeah. happened like that. And there was a Washington Monument, and then... Uh, Kevin Smith's like, I think he stole that from my comic book. And then Tim Burton says, I would never read a comic book. And if you think I would read a comic book, it's garbage, blah, blah, blah. And then Kevin Smith Ooh. said, that explains Batman. Yeah. <gasps> but just to, back. just since you uh, glazed over Ouch. that small detail, this the, the Superman story with Kevin Smith was about mainly like one of the things was Tim Burton wanted Superman to fight a giant spider. 
Well, not Tim Burton. That's, uh, that's a whole other it producer. Uh, it's a producer uh, who did Wild Wild West afterwards, and they fought that's a giant spider. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. He was really stuck on that idea. Apparently. Back on uh, Tim, Burton. Tim Burton. I mean, another one of his films that's... Sleepy I Hollow? really, really love it, but it's kind of hard to watch sometimes. Sleepy like, Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it recently. It's one of my favorite it's, ones. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty dark, little... but it's pretty gruesome sometimes. Oh, that yeah, like, it's a little dark. It's kooky. Tom's like, not enough. I need Well, because he makes his... Blood really bright, bright, bright candy red. Yeah. yeah. So it takes yeah. a lot of Tarantino, out for me. but <laughs> Tarantino does it's not quite. But the this thing is Tarantino's red. also not didn't throw like a black filter on your screen yeah. too. Right. It's like blue and yellow, just as bright as the blood. Uh I would say Sleepy Hollow is probably one of my favorite Tim Burton films for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. there's something about it's really it good. Really, and Beetlejuice. Yes. Beetlejuice is good. Oh, yeah. Beetlejuice Beetlejuice. Is good. oh my god, that's so and good. actually there's a Beetlejuice too that's confirmed. Oh, really? Beetlejuice goes yep. Hawaii. I, as Same I was looking Michael at his Keaton, IMDb. That was going to be the original Beetlejuice 2. Yeah. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Davis? Davis? Hawaii, yeah. Beetlejuice goes to Hawaii? I, Maybe. Uh, Michael Keaton has not confirmed in it yet, though. Uh, Weekend at Beetlejuice's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beetlejuice's. I love Caitlin, that word. So, uh, I know we're talking about it because we're doing director's list, but you for sure love Tim Burton? Like like him as a director? I love the movies what a loaded that question. he's done. Well, the reason I ask is because you weren't here when I talked about this story. We did Night Before Christmas. Uh-huh. And then he didn't I, direct that. Well, he is Tim Burton's presents. Yeah. He produced it. But we were talking about it, and uh, during like the anniversary event for Night Before Christmas, uh, I was at Disneyland, and I was in line, and I saw all this huge commo- commotion going on, and I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And everyone's taking pictures at the haunted mansion, and then I see someone is inside the cage next to Jack Skellington. So I'm like, "Who the hell is this asshole?" And then I saw it was Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Went and to Disneyland. To Disneyland, and did like a whole promo thing. I was like, "Oh my god!" And he just like walked right by him. I was like, "Oh shit!" And then you know, like perfect LA story, only a blurry picture. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> just get that blurry picture. That blur like, there. You that's see that Tim. Blob? Yeah. See the blur with the spikes. That's that's Tim. Burton. But the thing that's is, kind of like Burton. the funny thing is like I think. I think, you know, combination of Edward Scissorhands and Tim and Night Before Christmas kind of solidified the aesthetic we got from Tim yeah, Burton. Right. Even though, Tim, you know, he didn't direct uh, Night Before Christmas. But it's like, that's what we kind of expect out of it. But, like, he recently did Dumbo. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dumbo actually, like, works really hard to actually shit all over Disney. Mm-hmm. It makes fun of it all, wow. like, about mm-hmm. exploiting childhood. Well, and that was actually something I was going to bring up of I liked his older work. I have no interest in his current work. It's interesting. I think his aesthetic currently, and I think it's with the uh, growth of digital. I shouldn't say no interest, but it, like it's that's very, very harsh. little. Yeah. Well, very, the, very little interest. The, the thing is, like, I think with the uh, rising of digital, which you know, Christopher Nolan is very adamant about only using film, while Fincher is a big advocate for digital, mm-hmm. um, is that f- a lot of Tim Burton's film nowadays look like they have just this, like they look like they have Vaseline on the lens, mm-hmm. which is an aesthetic that a lot of people use to take photography. Alice in Wonderland, um, right. and it just makes everything super soft. Whereas, mm-hmm. like in Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice and older stuff, there was a little crispiness to it because he used film. Right. But the way he lights things, also like you see hard edges off people's faces. Right. And you don't get that with his current stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's a little interesting to see how he's evolved with technology. The last one you did was Sweeney Todd. Was the last one he really used hard so, light angles. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I like, love that movie. Which I, I love that movie. Yeah. yeah. I really liked. Yeah, that was a point that I was going to bring up of just like whenever that shift happened and he made that change to a lot of CG and very soft, as you said, Vaseline-y kind of look. It it changed for me, and it's just because I liked the old stuff, and I'm not as fond Why of the new stuff. Why did you have to stuff. change what I like? I'll ask this. <laughs> I'll ask this, then. What is your favorite one? My favorite one? Tim Burton movie. Mm. Yeah, choose one. No, and why is it not Edward Scissorhands? Oh, hey, yeah. I was going to make a joke. Yeah. But you picked it. <laughs> but yeah. I picked it because, of course, I did. Yeah, boo That's on you. One. That's just probably, the, that might also be mine. 
It's, yeah. it, that's a good one. And I, I give a lot of credit to Johnny Depp for that, for acting with only saying two words. I think he only says kebab I think, yeah. in the movie twice. Uh, but so when I on a you know everything about him. I would yeah. also mm-hmm. add on the Tim Burton is kind of uh, Danny Elfman. Like, uh, yeah. it's often oh, yeah. Hand, like, hand, hand in hand. Like, la, I love. La, 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 <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and Oingo Boingo. I just, <gasps> I love Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo so. is fucking phenomenal. Anyway, were you going to say more about? Not really. I mean, pretty much I like Tim Burton, but things have changed and I'm not as infatuated <laughs> as once I was. The thing that's cool with him, I think, is that like even though I think it's a far cry from what his original works were, it's like he still gets work and I still think he has a knack for holding onto a genre that is his is alone. Like, oh, yeah. Like, it, it is in a sense a auteur kind of thing where it's like, he does a gothic, uh, dark comedy stuff. It's like, but it's also like, versus how Fincher does dark comedy versus Coen Brothers dark comedy. It's a Fincher film. It's, it's got a, it's his a own stamp on it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's like that, you can't really, I don't know if there's any other director right now that can replicate his aesthetic. Do you know what I mean? No. Like, no. There's a lot of people, like, if you took, you know, a Cohen film and a Fincher film and made them, like, closer together, like, they could kind of look the same. But there's no way in hell that a Tim Burton film would look like another film Which next to it. Uh, this is just a tiny little shout-out to Nerd on Update. We had a question uh, from Mitchell G about um, why make anything when everyone's already made stuff. That is a great point to tie into it of, like, everyone has their own stamp on something. Yeah. Go listen to that episode to talk about it in depth, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, between Ollie and mine, mine's a little nicer. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and his will don't just... agree. Don't agree with that. But his will be based in science. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Corey, your second boy. John Carpenter. Shout out to Anthony Steves. Uh Aww. from the Cables Crusaders. Bomb, uh, bomb, bomb. John Carpenter is famous for for me, you've heard me talk a lot about one of his films specifically on we this podcast. Did a fucking the, episode thing. the thing is. No, I'm just the thing kidding. is. Um, but he's also famous for things like uh Halloween, Escape from New York, The Fog, Christine, uh They Live, Vem- Memoirs of an Invisible Man, the In the Mouth of Madness. Uh so He's got a, a big list of words, and most of them he actually writes himself oh. and also does the soundtrack for. Wow. Oh, wow. So he's kind of this renaissance man, um, and he's highly into practical effects, which for mm-hmm. me is a golden ticket to me liking your Thank film. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I, I really respect people who, I mean, of course, at the time they had to, but they were also on this verge of switching to digital effects, and he still chose to stay away from it. Um, for me, this guy is a master of suspense. Uh, I I think there's very few other directors who can so well tie a story together and make you feel like you can't breathe for two hours mm-hmm. uh, the way John Carpenter can. Uh, and you can watch his growth, which is really nice, from from Halloween to things like The Thing and They Live. And all his films have sort of a purposeful campiness to it that I really enjoy. It's not too much, mm-hmm. but it's enough to know that you can see where he started, right? You can see that like when they made Halloween, there was no budget mm-hmm. and he just had a story. And so he wrote it, he directed it and he wrote the soundtrack himself. Yeah. And they shot it out here in Pasadena. Yeah. So like I really respect, and over the last couple of years, Tom and I have discussed and, and he's seen my growth, Tom specifically in my trust in horror film directors Hmm. And because a lot of the time they are, they start in this place where like horror doesn't get a budget. Right. It just doesn't. It's one of those weird things because horror movies make a lot of money mm-hmm. because everybody at some point, uh, to some degree, likes that, like, oh, I feel like I'm alive. I'm scared a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. 
but their budgets are always so low, so it's always guaranteed to make money. Kind of but they have to be more creative. They have. They're forced to be right. Yeah. So there's that like there's Nintendo, that saying. I'm trying to make music off uh, like six bit. Yeah. Right. Bit. Right. Exactly. It's, it's there. There's that. Uh, there's some saying, and I forget. I'm gonna butcher it here, but it's like necessity breeds creativity. Restriction. Yeah. Restriction breeds creativity. Uh, and he like ran with that. There's everything is practical, so everything is in camera tricks. Everything is shot in a very specific way, so mm-hmm. you see specifically what he wants. Uh, it's I like got a magician, to, like you see what you he wants you to see. Exactly, uh, and I'm gonna like gush here a second. I got to go see him live on Halloween. Oh yeah, at, was that with Hennick? Yeah. Oh, okay. Adam, shout out to our friend Adam Hennick. We we both love Carpenter movies. We both specifically love the thing. Uh, but he's like I don't know. He's like 80 years old now. I think he's in his late 70s, oh, wow. early 80s. And he comes out on stage. He's wearing all black. He's got a black T-shirt, black button-up, black jeans, black boots, and wow. sunglasses. He's got all white hair. He's got like a ponytail. And he comes out, and he's like, I'm John Carpenter, and we're going to play songs from my movies. Wow. And, they wow. Just, and his son is in his band. He's like, that's my son back there. Here we go. And they just get into it. And this dude, I've never seen someone so happy on stage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So he's yeah. playing the themes, and he's projecting scenes the from the movies in the background That's awesome. and it was wow. awesome oh my god like it was such a cool experience uh and he sold like autographed finals and of course like oh well, no big deal uh <laughs> but, <laughs> which uh, may or may not be framed and for, hung for on me wall. just like that solidified seeing someone just enjoying the work that they've done in their life and like sharing it with people and the tickets were like dirt cheap like they're not charging a lot to go see him play his theme live and he's just up there with his son like having a ball at like 80 years old. And I just really respect him for that. So yeah, John one, Carpenter for sure. One thing I really loved about him, I think it was talking about one of his films and they're talking about, Oh yeah. Like what about your work on Halloween and all that shit? He's like, that's garbage. Yeah. Like he's oh. very like, wow. in that sense of like the Miyazaki again, like the striving for excellence, never stopping to, uh, you know, to take an easy way out. Yeah. Um, and everything that comes before it has to be a shell of who you were. And you can never be like too excited for it, even no matter how good it is. Like your next thing always has to be like your better thing. Mm-hmm. And so he was very much just like, and that's how I kind of like adopt how I think about everything, where it's like, yesterday was garbage. Today will be a better day. Or the next project I do, it will be even better. Or the yeah. next conversation I have will be even better. And everything's mm-hmm. like, let's not talk about that shit. That shit's garbage. Fuck that shit. So no matter how good it was, it might have made him the millions that he all lived off of. He's like, no, the next one's going to be done. The next one's going to be the one. Mm-hmm. And so, like that's uh, to me it's like really cool it's eccentric Mm -hmm. um but i think it's something that i think a lot of directors need to have in order to um kind of move on to the next film and project because you go ahead because i was like i think a lot of times he writes a lot of his stuff too right most of his stuff he writes um like 90 percent. something that i picked up from a writer and i really liked it's like writing is so easy because Mm -hmm. you love the story but then when you write it down for the first time, it is so hard. And it's because yeah. the idea is so easy. But you're in love with the idea. You're in love with the uh, story and the uh, action and the adventure. But you're not in love with the third act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's so hard to close the book. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. You have to be so in love with your ending more than you are in love with the actual story. Because if you can't get to that point, you will never finish the story. And to be a writer-director is really freaking hard. Um, and to do something that John Carpenter has done so often, like, and the thing about horror films, you got to be fucking lean. Mm-hmm. You can't make a, a two hour long horror film. Like 
you had a three-hour-long superhero movie. You can get away with that shit. You can have a three-hour-long epic from Christopher Nolan. Get away with that shit. You can't have a three-hour-long horror movie. You have to have a hundred. You have to have like a hundred-minute mo- movie max, yeah. ninety wow. minutes most of the time, because mm-hmm. people don't have patience and people don't expect to fall in love with characters. People don't expect that there's going to be a, a big story out of it. So you have to get through the story, have the narrative, and be done. But he somehow masterfully does it where you do care about the characters. You do care about how the monster comes to be or like kills them or and goes upon it. Or how does it make you feel when you leave the room at night? You know, like yeah. all that stuff. And he creates these great theme, thematic things that like in such a way in such a few words, kinda like his pieces, you know, like I would love to say he has credit to like Alien and, and Nightmare for Elm Street or Nightmare on Elm Street and Jason and all this stuff, but he doesn't. But the thing is the in, in such words. He was a part of all that. But who's the director for Nightmare on Elm Street? I don't know. Who's the director for... Oh, the, that's your point. You see yeah. it? Oh, Alien? Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott because he's sci-fi, but he's the sci-fi yeah. king. Right? But who's the director for the first, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. Things like that. Like, you can tell who John Carpenter is. Right. And yeah. that's a sense to be held. Hmm. Is like, oh, he's done something for horror films that not a lot of people do. Oh, Wes Craven did Nightmare on Elm Street. Done. Yeah, I was going to say. I was like, Wes Craven's kind of big, I know that but one. I was like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hellraiser, Clive Baker. Yeah. So like, uh, I just for those reasons alone, and like respecting the fact that he writes, directs, and scores his own films, for me is something it's pretty intense. I don't know of anyone else who also scores their own film. A lot of writer directors, but I don't know of Robert anyone. Robert Rodriguez, I think. Yeah. Right. But that, that's two. But and they're both like, what horror film directors. Right. <laughs> so like, well, shout I mean, out to or, the horror or just, film directors just, out there. Y'all got a fan in me. Or just super low budget, like yeah. seven thousand dollar movie. Yeah. Kind of. So. Uh, and obviously, my, my, I'd say my favorite th- movie is obviously the thing of his, but I also have a soft spot for both uh, They Live and Escape from yeah. New York. Yes. Yeah. I love Escape from New York. I, I just, it's, I'm just a, it's I'm so a, campy dude, I'm a, and awesome. I'm a Kurt Snake Russell fan. Oh. Uh, Caitlin, so good. I'm, to I'm give you also a... reference, that's the character Metal Gear Solid is based off of. Oh. Snake okay. Plissken. Solid snake. That makes sense. Yeah. I got to brush up on my carpenter. I always wondered why they. Uh, the only movie of his I've seen is but the thing. I also want to give a shout out. I know it didn't age well, <laughs> but Big Trouble <laughs> in Little China. China. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. It's a ridiculous fucking film, and I love it to bits. But it's so. Kurt Russell in a tank top for the entire movie. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's yeah. great. Wow. Uh, anyway, yeah, John Carpenter. So that's my last one. Very wow. cool. That's it. So, and then we're gonna save the other ones for save, like we'll, we'll do, do another. We'll, 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 we gotta okay. save for hey, directors too. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I did both of mine. <laughs> so okay. I have more to talk about. I mean, so. I have more time. <laughs> we all have, I have three more directors yeah, I want to talk about. about. Yeah, like, wow. These, these if are the you want another one of these episodes, let us know. Like, yes, comment, yeah. subscribe. Wow. Well, on that, what what are who are your favorite directors? Let us know on the social media and the DMs on the comments below. Wherever you connect with us, let us know. We're so into having conversation with our fans and our listeners and all that jazz. Please reach out. Can I also add, if you liked any of the films that we talked about or any of the directors you talked about, check out some of their works. Buy it for real on our Amazon affiliate. Please support the official Mm -hmm. release. Yes. uh, If you go to our website onto the affiliates page, you can click through and a little bit of your purchase does go to keeping the lights on. Amazon, Comixology, a couple different things. Yeah. Yeah. HostGator, Blueberry. If you are interested in starting a podcast, uh, head on over to Blueberry. They've been very kind to us. They're Mm -hmm. uh, an incredible company. Easy to work with. Easy to work with. Super Uh, responsive. their, Their support has been... We've got some things coming. 
and they've been helping us through the the big uh, the big thing happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and oh, if you want to support us just direct, you can go Patreon. Yes, the Nerd On Nation. Just like we said at the top, anywhere from a dollar to five dollars. There's above tiers, but every little bit helps, and we really appreciate that. And just I'm gonna go further. You listening uh, does support us. Please, if you 100%. liked us, share us with your friends and family. If you didn't, share us with your your enemies. I mean that that helps too. What if they like us? <gasps> Another big thing that's going on for us is we have a giveaway going yes, we on do. in celebration of our two years. Two years we are giving away a copy a digital copy want to be specific digital copy of waterlands 3 yeah once the winner is chosen and verified you will be able to choose which console you would like it for playstation Mm -hmm. 4 xbox uh, pc master ace nice wow yeah i uh head to any of our socials for that i believe the link for that will probably be nerdon.io backslash borderlands 3 or giveaway giveaway we'll go giveaway it's always giveaway always giveaway nerdon.io backslash giveaway Giveaway. we do more than one giveaway at a time come slap us (laughs) (laughs) please please or congratulate us because we have the ability to give away a lot of stuff because of you but it'd be a love slap that's what he's talking about Love slaps. Anywho, love tap. Love slap, baby. So yeah, if you want a copy of Borderlands Three, check that out. Yes, love slaps don't hold up in court. But uh, lots of good, lots of good stuff happening with our two-year anniversary. Thank you for being a part of it. But uh, yeah, on that, you know the drill. As always, nerd on. Ending broadcast.